If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Albert Gallatin. He'll be answering our call in 1846 at the age of 85. Albert hated the fact that in his home country of Switzerland, they were only concerned about two things, money and religion. After being orphaned at nine years old, he received an excellent education and then decided to move to the United States in the middle of the American Revolution. Upon arriving in Boston at 19 years old, with what some believed was an introductory letter from Benjamin Franklin, he quickly found that Boston, much like his home country, cared about two things, money and religion. Regardless of Boston not quite being what he expected, he was now living in what he called the freest place in the universe. Gallatin wanted to serve his new country by using his hard work and intellect to become a senator, despite not meeting the citizenship requirements at the time. He was also a member of the House of Representatives. He was the ambassador to France and England and was the longest-serving Treasury Secretary in history, and later in life was even asked to run as vice president. After Alexander Hamilton's attempt to create the financial system and Jefferson commanding that it be torn down, Gallatin was the calm hand behind the treasurer's desk for 13 years. During that time, he created structure in the chaos, allowing the nation to build on what it had already accomplished and then expand while simultaneously reducing the nation's debt by half. He was an extraordinary man that the country needed at the exact time he happened to be available. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and clockmakers everywhere, I give you Albert Gallatin. Hello, is that you, Mr. Gallatin? It is indeed, sir. Sir, it is a pleasure to speak with you today. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm talking to you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were standing five feet from one another. And it also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. Well, I was hoping that I could ask you some questions today, but before I do, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you might have first? Well, the only thing, sir, is that my friend and agent in your time has explained to me that this is also known as a telephone, which is based on two Greek words, tele meaning at a distance and phono meaning I hear or I listen. Therefore, I am prepared to hear things at a distance. But I am a little bit perplexed by the notion of recording. Can you explain a little bit what it is that you do in order to record the sound I gather of my voice or what it is that I say. Are you seeing something? No, actually, and by the way, I'm, I'm actually not surprised that you knew the origin of those two words in telephone. I didn't know that exactly, but certainly you would have known that being a man who speaks many different languages. I'm glad that you cleared that up for me. I, and I want to ask you about your languages just for a second, but as far as the recording and how that works to answer your question, it's really strange. It is just every word that we're saying right now ends up on a device that allows us to push a button and we can just hear it over and over. So let me ask you about 
as you broke those words up. You speak several languages, don't you? Well, it is true, sir, that my first language is French. You see, I was born in Geneva, Genève, in what is now the Helvetic Republic, but it was at the time of my birth in 1761 an independent city-state. And being close to France itself and having at one point been a part of France, it is not exceptional that I should speak French. That is, of course, my first language. The English language I did not learn until I actually left Geneva when I was 19 in 17 and 80 and came to the United States at the time. Of course, it was not yet the United States. But I landed in Massachusetts, and it, I had to begin to learn to speak English. Now, English was not completely foreign, to make a small joke, to me entirely, because there were a number of Americans who sent their sons to Geneva to be educated further. You see, Geneva was fortunate in having an excellent educational system. And we had first the Collège de Genève, which was at the level of the secondary sorts of schools. And then there was l'Académie de Genève, which was the university level and which was considered to be at a, an equivalent of, say, Oxford or Cambridge or Bologna in the Italian-speaking land. And so English was not unheard of in the lands that surrounded Geneva and was in Geneva itself. Now, the languages which I myself studied in school were, of course, Latin and Greek, which is where I had some facility remaining with those two particular languages, but we do not use those on a consistent basis, obviously. I think the last time when somebody heard a Latin speak was either in the church or was somewhere about the fifth century of the current era. And so we are given the opportunity to learn various languages, especially in the Académie de Genève, and we focused, among other things, on Latin and Greek. But as far as languages which I currently speak, I can only speak French, and some might even say I can't even speak English terribly well. Well, it sounds pretty good to me, and considering how far you made it through the American political system, obviously people understood you just fine. Let me address something that I don't understand this. Like, I've been dying to ask this question. You immigrated to what became the United States in 1780. And if I have my dates right, this is right in the middle of the American Revolution. And I mean, what was your situation? Are you in Switzerland and you're broke and you have nothing? And so you're like, I got to go somewhere where I can find freedom. And I mean, what caused you to go across the sea and decide you want to be in America when we're in the middle of fighting this gigantic war? Well, the first consideration is that my family's background, the Galatin, Actually, the origins of it are Italian. We came from the lands of the Savoia in the northwestern part of the Italian-speaking land, just south of the Alps itself. And my family came to Geneva in the 13th century. We eventually, however, left the service of the Dukes of Savoy and became citizens of Geneva and fought for her and in some instances died for her. 
one of my relatives in the 17th century, one of my ancestors, died in 1602 in the defense of the city of Geneva against an attack by the then Duke of Savoy, who was attempting to reclaim Geneva as a part of his lands. But by the time that I was born in 1761, my father, Jean Galatin, who was a clockmaker, and his wife, Sophie Albertine Rolaz, were citizens in the middle class. We were considered to be in the upper class of Geneva. There were some 5,000 people who had the right to vote for the councils in Geneva. But my father died when I was four. My mother attempted to maintain the business of clockmaking, but I had an elder sister, Suzanne, who suffered from a nervous debility. And finally, when I was nine years old and Suzanne was 14, my mother decided that she needed to take Suzanne to a reputable facility to address her, Suzanne's nervous debility. And she left me in the care of a distant relative of my father, Mademoiselle Catherine Pictet, and she took Suzanne to Montpellier in France. Unfortunately, my mother contracted a fever and died, and we lost all track of my sister. We have no idea what happened to her. Thus, at the age of nine, I was literally totally orphaned. But Mademoiselle Pictet treated me as though I were the child of her body and saw to it that I received not only an excellent education, but also the needed love that is part of a family. But I also had a grandmother who was a rather formidable lady, Suzanne Vaudenay Galatin. And Madame Galatin, my grandmother, was a correspondent of Voltaire, the famous French philosophe, and of Friedrich II, who was the Landgraf or the Duke of Hesse Castle. And in 1779, my grandmother had written to the Landgraf and had asked for a commission for me as a lieutenant colonel in his armies. And he sent the message back that he was prepared to do this. And when my grandmother informed me, I told her I would never fight for such a tyrant. Because, of course, it was Hester Castle that was providing the mercenaries that were fighting for George III here in the United States. And so for my temerity, she boxed me upside the ear. And I probably deserved it, at least from the standpoint of a lack of gratitude. But it determined me at that point that I should need to make my own way. I had two very good friends from school, Henri Serre and Jean Badelet, and Baudelaire could not make any sort of trip anywhere because he did not have any monies, whatever. But Serre did, and he and I left in 1780 to go to what I called at the time the freest land in the entire universe. And we left in early 1780 and took ship outside of Nantes in France and landed eventually in Massachusetts near Boston. And I went into Boston and remained there for several months. We hoped that we had purchased some goods, which we had hoped to be able to sell, to act as merchants. Fortunately, the entire 
story of my life that every time I attempted to do business, I was not particularly good at doing business because I chose as one of our goods tea. And what had the entire revolution started over? It started over tea. And so we arrived in Boston and we did not make much of an impression, needless to say. But in the winter of 17 and 80 and 81, we did something which, when I have spoken to others who are from the northern states, I say to them, do you know anyone who in his or her right mind would go to Maine in the winter? And the usual reaction is a rolling of the eyes and a blowing out of the lips as though it were to say, oh, what sort of fool is that? Well, Sarah and I were two fools that decided to go to Fort Machias in Maine in the winter of 17 and 80 and 81. And needless to say, it was not an enormous success. We returned from our time there. It was, in fact, the only time that I ever was close to being in a military way in that one particular day, a report came in that there was an English and uh, Indian war party somewhere in the vicinage. And the captain who commanded the fort looked at me and said, you are now in command and took his soldiers and went out to look for this war party. The only thing I knew to do was to shut the gates. And after that, I had no idea what it was that I should do if we should be attacked by the, this war party or another. And you were in command? Yes, I was in command, at least in name I was in command. But I had no conception what it is that I should do if, I, if the fort should be attacked. I hoped that there would be someone who would have a far better idea than I. So what happened? As to what, well, as it turned out, nobody approached the fort. The captain returned to resumed command, and I never had to worry about it again. Oh and my shortly after that, oh yeah, shortly after that, we left, Ser and I left Fort Machias and returned to Boston. Now, Ser was not particularly pleased with what we had encountered, and so he decided to go to the, the West Indies and to try to make his way there. Sadly, he died of smallpox while he was in the West Indies. So it was very much a shame for him to have gone, to have made his way in Barbados, in the West Indies, but he died of smallpox. I want to ask hmm. you a question. I'm confused because I'm still trying to figure out the answer to this question, and that is... It's 1780. The United States is still in the middle of the Revolutionary War with England. And you are home. Obviously, you had some tragedy in your life, but you were still with your, I think you said your grandmother who loved you. Why in the world would you move to a country that was in the middle of war? Does that seem like an intelligent idea? Well, you may question the intelligence that should inform such a decision, but insofar as the war's progress itself, by 1780, the war had moved farther south, more in the direction of Virginia and South Carolina and North Carolina. Therefore, there was very little in the way of active war that was being pursued in the northern states. And so it was not a particularly 
dangerous state of affairs, at least as far as I was able to conceive at the time. Of course, at the age of 19, what does one know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. At 19, you don't even think about things like that. That is exactly so. However, having been given the opportunity to be a lieutenant colonel in an army and having refused it, I was not unaware of the potential dangers which might have arisen in the northern states. But it was not likely that we were going to confront terribly much difficulties in that regard. We were not going to confront armies going back and forth as we had earlier in 17 and 75 or in 17 and 76. The war had moved elsewhere and the English had a strategy which was focusing their attention more on the southern states than even on the middle states or the northern states. From my viewpoint, as a young man trying to make his way in the world and feeling somewhat constricted, perhaps, by what it was in Geneva that was the principal attention, which was to make money or religion, which I would have to say, and I hope that in the future, whenever someone should happen to pay attention to this particular discussion, that people from Boston are not insulted when I say that, unfortunately, I disliked Boston precisely because they were focused primarily on making money and on religion. And I think it reminded me too much of home. So you thought you were coming to something different, and it was the exact same thing. There was far too much similarity, in fact. And, of course, this was the religious viewpoint of the people who had settled in Boston was not dissimilar from those that were living in Geneva. Because, of course, there was Jean Couvin, you know him as John Calvin, who was the creator of a theocratic state in Geneva and was the father of Presbyterianism as furthered by John Knox in Scotland and many of the people who lived in Boston had, in fact, picked up some of the viewpoints of Calvin and Knox, and their religious practices were very much in keeping with those. So when I returned, let me continue on with my little history here. When I yes. returned to Parkston in 17 and 81, I began to look at what it was that I could do and what was the one thing which I could do. I could teach French. And so I went to Harvard College and proposed that I should teach French to any of the young people that were interested. And at that particular time, a large number of Americans were, in fact, looking to learn French because of the emphasis and the influence of the French who had, in fact, come to New England to come to Newport in Rhode Island and to Boston as well. And they wished to learn French so as to be able to speak with the French soldiers and officers that were there. And so by the middle of 1783, I had something like 60 students that I was teaching French. And the overseers of Harvard College were very pleased with my efforts and made positive statements in that regard. It was at that time, however, that I was approached by someone by the name of Jean Savary de Valcoulon. De Valcoulon was a nobleman who was acting as an agent 
for the French officers who had served in our late revolution and who had been promised land grants, but he did not speak English. And so when he found me in Boston, he proposed that I should join him as we went through the northern states and the middle states looking at some of the lands that were available from the government, from the Confederation government, in, in reward to the soldiers who had fought for our army in the revolution. So I joined him. We went through from Boston to New York to Philadelphia, and we ended eventually in Richmond in Virginia. And the, the interesting thing there was I met two very significant individuals one by the name of John Marshall, who until very recently, in fact until 1835, when he passed away, was the Chief Justice of our Supreme Court from 1800 until 1835. That's what I was going to ask you. You're speaking of Chief Justice John Marshall. Did you have a good relationship with him? Well, let me explain a little bit what the relationship was, at least initially. Okay. In 1783, when we arrived in Richmond, John Marshall had just left the army. He was a colonel, and he was establishing himself as a lawyer in Richmond, which had become the capital of the Commonwealth of Virginia, having moved from Williamsburg. And when he met me, for some reason, he was very impressed with whatever it was that I said or did, and he offered me not only the opportunity to read law, I am not sure that you are familiar with the process of how you become a lawyer in these days. You read law in someone's law office, and then you practice law either individually or as a part of a larger firm. But not only did he offer me the opportunity to become a lawyer, but he also offered me the opportunity after that, once I would pass the bar, to become a lawyer in his firm which I found most flattering, most uh, unexpected, especially since my English was not at the time of the best. And as a result, I was very flattered by this. The other significant person I met was Patrick Henry, who mm -hmm. was governor. And Governor Henry, when he was told about Colonel Marshall's reaction to my, myself, said to me, I am sure, Mr. Gallatin, that you would make a fine lawyer, but I have advice for you, which is two pieces of advice, in fact. First, become a statesman and then go west. Well, that seems very complimentary until you think that actually he was cursing me twice. <laughs> in the first instance, do you know what the definition of a statesman is? No, I, not, I mean, I think I know what it is, but uh, tell, go ahead, tell me. A dead politician. How is that? Well, you become a statesman only after you have passed from this world and people say, oh, ah, ah look at him. Was he not wonderful, this man? He acted in a statesman manner. But never <laughs> are you called a statesman to your face in the day. And so this was the first curse, is that he was calling me a dead politician. The second one. He was asked, telling me to go west into the lands of the Indians, who were, of course, not particularly happy with any of us. And as I already, at the age of 23, was bald, 
I did not care to lose what remained of my hair to unhappy natives. Did you actually, you actually lost all your hair by the time you were 23? I had lost everything on, from the forehead up to the crown of my head. I had hair on the sides, but not in, in the center. Well, that's, so, why he was, that's why he was comfortable sending you where the Indians were, because there was nothing to scalp. They would have not been so careful, I am sure. They would have taken what they could have. Yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. So Patrick Henry, what kind of guy was he? I did not get to know him terribly well. My experience of Governor Henry is more at second hand from the experiences of Mr. Jefferson. Mr. Jefferson and Governor Henry were not, shall we say, the closest of friends, nor was Mr. Madison. As you may recall, during the ratification of the Constitution, the convention that was called in Virginia, Mr. Madison and Governor Henry were at odds with each other about the importance of it, and even to the point of where Governor Henry, in his last peroration against the Constitution, was speaking in the midst of a thunderstorm, and over claps of lightning, he was excoriating all those who wanted to have a more centralized government, and it was a great deal of sound and fury signifying nothing in the end. Thanks for so, a good speech, though. Yes, if all one is concerned about is making a great deal of noise, then yes, it makes for a very great speech. But that is not how nations are governed, by speeches. That's a very good point. A very good point. Speaking of government, I wanted to ask you, so you're now talking about some of these important meetings of the Founding Fathers, of which I've heard you called the Swiss Founding Father, which I thought was interesting. I hadn't heard that term, but considering everything you've accomplished, it sounds appropriate. But you were, so when you come over to the United States in 1780, and by the time you're here for nine years, aren't you a delegate in the Continental Congress at that point? You are, in fact, anticipating, shall we say, some dates. Let me explain. In 1787, when the delegates met in Philadelphia, the issue before them was what would be the nature of the government. Would it be a very weak confederation which had no powers for taxation and for defense? not able to gather sufficient monies to be able to actually protect and advance the necessities for the people? Or would we have a government that, while not perfect, would be far better equipped to handle questions of foreign policy and handle matters of economic policy and so forth? And so in 1787, you had those who felt very strongly that they needed to be a strong central government. Among them was Madison and Hamilton and His Excellency, General Washington. There were those of us, however, and I was among them, who felt that the Constitution as written did not protect sufficiently the individual rights of the citizen and that there needed to be some adjustment to the Constitution to do this. And so in September of 1788, 23 of us in Pennsylvania, because at this point I had now moved and purchased land in the southwestern part of Pennsylvania, in what is now known as Fayette County, 
and established my seat there, Friendship Hill, I was chosen to be a delegate to a convention which was going to address the question of whether we should demand that the Constitution as ratified by Pennsylvania should not be, in fact, turned over and that we should not begin again. And while my initial position was that it should be, we should start all over, it eventually struck me that this is not a particularly intelligent way to approach the issue of governance, because you can never create a perfect instrument of governance. And the Constitution had built within it the means to be able to change itself and to address matters as they became present for consideration in specifically the amendment process in the Constitution. And so while I was considered at the time an anti-federalist, federalists being those who felt that we needed a strong central government and who were content with the Constitution as it was written in Philadelphia, it was clear to Mr. Madison, certainly, that, uh, forgive me, this is uh, Gilbert, our cat here. Uh, he's named <laughs> okay. Gilbert in honor of the Marquis de Lafayette, whose given name is Gilbert Dumotier de Lafayette. And he is long and ginger-haired, which the good Marquis was, red hair. And of so you would know his full name. Was, actually, his full name was Marie-Joseph Paul-Yves Roche-Gilbert Dumotier, that's the family name, Dumotier, de Lafayette, which is, of course, the title. And so this is why, of course, we do not call him the cat. We call him Gilles. And so to return to the matter of 17 and 89, by 17 and 89, I had become an adherent of the party which you could say was being created around Mr. Jefferson and which eventually became known as the Democrat Republicans. The Federalist Party, which was in prominence in Pennsylvania, were the ones who were in charge, who were in responsibility for the government of Pennsylvania. And, but I was elected to the Pennsylvania House of Delegates and was there from 17 and 89 until 17 and 93, each year being re-elected by my fellow citizens in Fayette County. In 17 and 93, the Pennsylvania legislature decided that I should become one of the two senators because, of course, it is the legislature which chooses the senators for, from each of the states. I did, however, point out to them that there was a difficulty, and the difficulty was that one needed to be a citizen of the United States for nine years in order to serve as a senator. I had only been a citizen for eight years. I had taken the oath of allegiance to the Commonwealth of Virginia in November of 1785 at Monongalia Courthouse, which was very well and good. And of course, before there was a United States of America under the Constitution, this was how you became a citizen, was you took an oath of allegiance to one of the particular states. 
So that's why you chose Virginia. But you were actually a U.S. citizen, but they want you to run for Senate, but you're just short of the time. So what did you do? Did you wait? Well, no. What I told them was I said, gentlemen, I said it is very difficult for the situation because I will arrive in Philadelphia. I will take the oath of office, and certainly there will be objections to my taking the seat as the senator from Pennsylvania. And rather to my surprise, the legislators in Philadelphia, in the Pennsylvania state legislature, said, oh, Albert, don't worry about it. We will, it, 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 they will make no particular difficulty over this. Well, in November of 1793, I took the oath of office as a senator. And the next day, 19 good electors from York, Pennsylvania, all good Federalists, submitted a petition to the Senate that I should be removed from office for a failure to meet the constitutional requirement for the length of time as a citizen be able to serve as a senator. And so eventually my case came to trial in the Senate in March of 1794, and by a strict party vote, 14 to 12, I was removed from office. That's actually really close, considering that, I mean, this is a pretty big rule. It's, it's shocking to me that you're in the country for such a short time. I mean, you're literally in the country for 13 years. You come into the country, we're in the middle of a war, and already you're a senator. It's amazing that it got that far, and then it was that close to you actually being able to continue. I wonder what would have happened if they had allowed that to continue, because then that rule becomes flexible forever. Well, you have made a very cogent point there, sir, which is that there is a reason why in the Constitution there are certain specific requirements in terms of age, in terms of citizenship, and so forth. But the question eventually became somewhat more cogent even in 18 and 24 when I was considered for the vice presidency of the United States. And the question, of course, would arise, but wait, you were not born here. How is it that you have the right to even look at one of the two highest offices in the People's Trust? And the answer is that because when the Constitution was ratified, it had a provision which, in fact, allowed that anybody who was a citizen of any of the states at the time of the ratification was considered to be a citizen of the United States as though native born. And so it would have applied to Alexander Hamilton if he had in fact ever considered running for, applying for one of the two highest offices in the land. And even when you think on it, in a sense, no one was native born to the United States in 1789. George Washington was a citizen of England. John Adams was a citizen of England. Thomas Jefferson was a citizen of England. You know, the only people that were actually natives to the United States were the ones that we were trying to kick out of it. You mean the Indians? Yes, the Indians. Well, yes, I mean, it, it has been mentioned to me in passing what would it have been like if the policy of immigration were such that, as 
even as early as 1790, one of the representatives from South Carolina did not wish to have any immigrants be allowed into the nation because he felt that it was a ruination of our nation to allow such people in. Can you imagine what would have been the case if the Indians had a similar policy when the first Englishmen or Frenchmen or Spaniards came to this continent? I wonder. Yeah. It's fascinating to listen to you talk about, I, I guess I didn't realize that you were almost on the ticket as a vice president in 1824. Just imagine if you had become vice president and then the president at that time had died. It really was kind of gray when you were a citizen and when you weren't and when you immigrated and when it was okay for you to be a congressman. I mean, it could have been a Swiss president. It really could have happened. It could have turned that whole situation upside down. It was, in fact, far closer than you may be aware, because in 1824, the person who was at the top of the ticket was a gentleman named William Crawford, who had served for six years as Secretary of the Treasury after I had departed to serve in Europe. And he suffered a, some form of a seizure, which left him very nearly blind, which made it difficult for him to walk or to talk. And his, the managers of his political efforts to become president wanted me on the ticket because it was, in their view, someone who had, of course, a background as a Republican, as a Democrat Republican, who had long service in the nation. I had been in service, truly, in the nation since 1788, if you include my efforts in Harrisburg in that time, and had served as a legislator, as a cabinet officer, and as a diplomat. And so the view of the people who were attempting to make Mr. Crawford president was that I would provide some form of depth and seriousness to the ticket and Actually, I was healthier than Mr. Crawford by a considerable bit. And so it is not impossible. Now, I did not wish to be the vice president. I will be very frank with you in this regard. Mr. John Adams' view that this was the most useless office in the invention of man, but rather that it was not appropriate for me, in particular, having been away from America as long as I had been, seven years in France, three years or two years before that in the negotiations to bring about an end of the war of 18 and 12, and that I had lost touch with the political realities of the time. But I felt obligated to say yes because I was called upon to offer again my services to the nation. And so I said yes, but it was a very unhappy yes. And unfortunately, when I finally withdrew, it was a very poorly conducted and a very clumsily done matter on the part of the people who were running Mr. Crawford's efforts to become president. What was clumsy about it? Oh, it was the way it was asked. It was the way it was conducted. It was insulting. It's no wonder that he invited you onto the ticket because... You were probably five times as qualified considering the time that you were a diplomat and the time you were in the Treasury. I mean, 
weren't you in the house at one point as well? Yes, I was. Uh, I was in the house from 1795 until 1801, uh, which of course is a very important time in the history of the House of Representatives. In the first two years, Mr. Madison, who had before then served six years in the House from 1789, was in the last two years of his time in the House and would leave in 1797. Effectively, he was the leader of the Democrats, Republicans in the House of Representatives. Upon his departure, I became effectively the leader of the Democrat Republicans, which led to some very interesting situations. One of them was that, as I have mentioned before, you can hear that I have an accent. Some would call it a speech impediment. And the truth of the matter was, is that I was accused by my political opponents of having an incomprehensible speech, that my accent made whatever he was that I said utterly beyond understanding. But it was always a curiosity on my part that whenever our Federalist opponents would speak in the House, make some speech, some sort of representation, the Democrat-Republicans would come to my desk and would say, Galata, you must reply. And it was always of curiosity to me that was it because of the clarity of my thought or the incomprehensibility of my accent that I was called upon to reply to the Federalists. I am sure that they had trouble understanding you when it was convenient for them, because well, yeah. yeah, clearly you get your point across wherever you go. Well, it is of interest to me that it never seemed to disturb Mr. Jefferson or Mr. Madison or, in fact, any of the people in the Democrat-Republicans that I should be called upon to reply to whatever was called upon. But for the most part, especially when I was in the, the Treasury, it was mostly in the form of writing. And so that I have always been able to use the language appropriately in that. For public speaking, well, that's another matter altogether. Maybe Federalists just can't understand French. Maybe that's it. Except that I was not speaking French. <laughs> well, they can't understand a French accent. Ah, well, yes. That's, well, in fact, when you consider that uh, during the same period of time, from 1797 until 1801, what was passed in the House of Representatives? The Alien and Sedition Act. Mm -hmm. And what was that designed to do? That was designed to keep immigrants, such as myself, distant from the levers of government, insofar as, for example, before anyone could have run for the House they wanted to make it so that it was 14 years from the time that you arrived in at the shores of the U United States before you could be considered for public office. And this would have applied only to those who were immigrants. It's weird that we make so many laws against people immigrating to the United States because the country is built on these people. If somebody like you ha had not made it to the United States, the whole foundation of our financial system. It seems to me as this combination of you and Alexander Hamilton. God knows what would happen if these two immigrants hadn't come to the United States and showed us how to handle our finances. May I make an even more cogent point in that regard in terms yes, of and the immigrants. Out of the first six 
secretaries of the treasury. Four were immigrants. In 18 and 13, with us facing financial ruin in the conduct of the war, we tried to create a $16 million bond, which if three immigrants had not contributed $9,100,000 in the purchase of bonds, we would have had to go hat in hand to the English and essentially become again a colony of England. And so mm -hmm. the tendency to look at immigrants as somehow some sort of difficulty, as some sort of drag on the United States, it is a canard which must be put to rest. But I have no confidence, none, that such an enlightened attitude will be the matter because there is always someone who is using immigrants as a way of raising fear and let it be said to be elected and reelected to office yeah and it's you know it's still that way to this time and I'm you know sorry the, to hear that yeah well and the problem is that you know one one person comes over from another country and then he i don't know steals a horse from somebody and then that becomes the label for every immigrant that's going to come over. They assume that they're all thieves or whatever, and that's obviously not the case. I mean, the story of America is one successful immigrant after the other. Is it not possible for someone who was born here to steal a horse? Yeah, that's true. It's true. There have been a couple natural-born Americans that have stolen some horses a couple times in their life. Speaking of stealing horses... Alexander Hamilton, not that he's ever stolen a horse, but there's a lot of people think that he's dishonest and don't like him. What are your feelings on Alexander Hamilton? Very complex. Very complex, sir. Certainly I was, if you recall our earlier discussion, in which I spoke that I was an anti-federalist, and Colonel Hamilton was very much a federalist. In fact, he moved as much as he could to ensure the authority of the central power was amplified as much as possible. However, saying that, and saying that he certainly saw debt as a good thing, let us be more precise in that particular statement. It is easy to blame him for debt qua debt. However, he was not speaking a perpetually large debt, but he was speaking to a perpetually existing debt. And the difference is this, is that when it comes to matters of debt, if you have the opportunity for merchants, for bankers to borrow, they will become more and more adherence of the system that makes it possible for them to do so. And if the central government is the one which makes it possible in the form of the Bank of the United States, for example, then they will become adherents of and supporters of the government that makes such available to them. We objected to that because we felt that debt was an evil that would drain in form of taxes for example, the excise tax on whiskey, uh, which raised a rebellion in Western Pennsylvania from 1791 to 94, but taxes would drain from the small farmer, 
from the small merchants what he needed in order to be able to feed his family, to be able to, to maintain his business. Now, the objections which were raised eventually to the Bank of the United States, both the first and the second bank, was in too many instances, again, not clearly laid on the basis of facts. They were laid on the basis of fears, which unfortunately, in any sort of a representative government such as we have, is far too easy a tool to use to claim, as we had just spoken a moment ago, about immigrants. Oh, yes, one immigrant steals a horse, and all immigrants are horse thieves. We, of course, ignore the native-born person who steals a horse. Are all native-born people less horse thieves? Well, no. The difficulty with fear is that there are instances where even a person who is operating in a way that you would object to, as for example I did for Hamilton, you find yourself suddenly confronted by the positive actions of his father. Let me give you the specific example. In 1792, there was a gentleman named William Dewar, D-U-E-R. Mr. William Dewar had been the second in the treasury under Hamilton in the first years of the creation of the Treasury Department. He left the Treasury Department and then he proceeded to try to corner the bond market. Now, Hamilton had no particular model to use as to what it was that he should do in response to this. Because what Dewar was doing was taking money and was purchasing all of the bonds. But Hamilton, in his very creative and great intelligence, realized that he could move the monies in the Bank of the United States from place to counter Dewar's efforts to buy all of the bonds. And the result was that eventually this scheme on the part of Dewar failed. He was charged with peculation, was put in prison, and he died in prison. Wow. While, while there were things that, that Hamilton did that I did not agree with, I had to give him credit for his, not only for his creativity, but for the actions he took to ensure that the economy of the United States should not be ruined by this speculative oh. effort by Dewar. And so when in 1796 I wrote a survey of the finances of the United States, I did not mention anything about the Bank of the United States. And when five years later, Mr. Jefferson appointed me as a, an interim appointment, a recess appointment to the Treasury, he gave me as a statement of what he wanted to have done, that I was to destroy the Hamiltonian system, that I was to take it apart altogether. And I did as I usually do. I went and sat in the Treasury and asked questions and observed. And eventually, at the end of November, I was 18 and 1, I went back to Mr. Jefferson and I said to him, Sir, the Hamiltonian system is perfect. It was not what Mr. Jefferson wanted to hear from me. Oh, yeah, but, he probably loved that. Well, yeah, indeed. If love is a sour look, 
the result was that over the next eight years, next seven years of his presidency, he would return back to the question of the Bank of the United States. But it was very clear to me that we needed a balance wheel, like every time piece should have is a good balance wheel. The Bank of the United States was such, and it was able to keep the economy of the United States functioning in such a way that by the end of 18 and 7, we had reduced the debt of the United States in spite of purchasing Louisiana for 15 millions of dollars. We had reduced it by half. Wow. In 18 and 1, the debt of the United States was 82 millions of dollars. You add the 15 millions, it means 97 millions of dollars. So how were we able to do this? Well, several reasons. First of all, I had come up with a program with the Congress that every year $740,000 would be applied to the debt of the United States, to working down the debt of the United States. And so in two years' time, I mean, I'm sorry, not $740,000, no, $7,400,000, forgive me. And thus, by the end of 18 and 3, we had reduced the debt by almost 15 millions of dollars, which was why in adding the cost of the Louisiana territory, it would simply have extended the final payment on the debt of the United States by a year and a half. Instead of 18 and 17, it would have been 18 and 19. I spoke with President Jefferson a few days ago, and I was asking him, I was applauding him for reducing the debt during his presidency from 80 some million down to 45 million as you're saying and of course he gave all the credit to you which actually led to this conversation i wonder if the this fiscal responsibility that that you have with money that actually is not yours does this come from you being swiss i don't know that it's necessarily because i of my origins in geneva but it does i believe to some extent have to do with what my father, as a small shopkeeper, tried to do. He tried to address his debt as quickly as possible so that the family should not be held to account for monies which had been obtained, had been loaned for the improvement, for example, of the shop and so on and so forth. I don't know that necessarily was the actual impetus for my care, but it seemed to me from the time I was very young that one had responsibilities and one had to exercise those responsibilities as vigorously as possible because other people depended upon your exercise of that responsibility. That makes a lot of sense because if that debt is on your back, it makes you weak. There was some quote Dr. Franklin said about that uh, an empty bag can't stand by itself or something like that. And if you had all that debt, you're going to be weak. And if it's not there, you're in a much stronger position. And if this is so in an individual case, consider how much more so it is for a state, for a government. If they are burdened by debt, they are always subject to other people who have, shall we say, less than honorable intentions. Yeah. Yeah. You're always subject to the wishes of some king, and that king is whoever holds the note. 
This guy is a genius, but I still can't help but wonder, how in the world was he able to convince himself to come to the United States in the middle of a war against England? It's madness, but it does give us a sense at how the world might have seen the United States at that time. He would have wanted to come here because this was a new land, overflowing with opportunity, and people who understood that nothing was more valuable than freedom. Well, I mean, except for the millions of slaves we had. I mean, except for that. In the next episode, you're going to hear how Gallatin handled the Whiskey Rebellion that could have resulted in riots and a massacre, but instead ended with almost no deaths. And you'll hear about the cardinal sin he committed when meeting George Washington for the first time, and what it's like to have the icy stare of his excellency when it's focused only on you. Thanks for listening. I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast. And if you haven't yet, don't forget to subscribe. And we'll see you at the next episode of the Calling History Podcast. 